John himself loved his rock and roll album. He didn't think it was good enough, but he loved that album himself. He did it because he wanted to, because he's always wanted to do rock and roll. And I love that because I know that he was so happy doing it. John Lennon's sister, Julia Baird. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. One night, 40 years ago this week, a young man approached musician John Lennon outside Lennon's Manhattan apartment building, appearing to ask for an autograph. Instead, he shot and killed John Lennon, who at that time was just 40 years old. A few years later, Lennon's half-sister, Julia Baird, wrote a book about him and her and their mother called John Lennon, My Brother. I met Julia Baird in 1988 when she was touring the U.S. to promote that book, and she was eager to clear up misconceptions about her brother, as you're about to hear. So here now from 1988, Julia Baird. Over the years, I've gone into various bookshops and libraries and things. Whenever there's been a new biography of John and or the Beatles, I don't buy them. We've been sent a lot. I don't read them either only because they're so wrong. And I look back to the beginning where um, it relates to my mother and John's childhood, and there's usually one line or one paragraph, because they don't know any more than that. Now, they've written a book. They haven't contacted me or my sister, but they've written a book. Okay, So I go in and see what they say, and it's always misrepresentative. I've complained to John about it on the phone. He said, look, right above it, Joe. It doesn't matter. Let them write what they like. They're going to write what they like anyway. Now, after um, John had died, one, the support had gone for that. I'm the next one down. And the main reason for the actual electric prodding, if you like, to write this book, in England there's a cultural programme, very well watched, called Everyman. And I don't know if you had the film here from my talking to people, I don't think you did, but they did the thoroughly documented research life story of John to commemorate five years, 1985. So I watched it, not because I wanted to, and certainly not because I'm a masochist, but I knew that my children would watch it, their friends, they're 17 and 18 now, so they're what, 15 and 16, would watch it. Um, everyone that I know would watch it, and they'd all know things about me that I didn't know. So I watched it. Now this first line, or first paragraph had been translated into five minutes on celluloid and it was just as wrong and my mother was grossly maligned and I thought right that is it now I complained about my bit Cynthia complained about her bit they had Cynthia getting married the thoroughly documented story of John didn't even include Julian's birth he wasn't there at all I mean that was a joke my mother was on as a silly empty-headed nitwit who abandoned a child which wasn't true at all and Cynthia complained about her bit. She was on getting married with short, dark hair and a headscarf. This is the glorious Bridget Bardo lookalike. <laughs> um, and it was just so wrong that I felt, right, I'll do something. Now, at the end of that programme was a, a clipping, a short clip of Yoko and Sean sitting somewhere here in, um, at home, presume, on the sofa, watching this film. Now, it wasn't part of the film, but it had been added on to the end. So to me, it was like the seal of approval. 
saying, yes, well, what a wonderful film, and this is a good way for Sean to learn about his father's family. While his father's family are sort of fainting all over the place, so, you know, this isn't us <laughs> at all. Um, and so that's why I started it. Now, what I actually did was I wrote an essay, because that's all I'm capable of writing explaining the situation it was like an exorcism for me i wrote it down right and i know the people who run the beatles conference center in liverpool i know them as chums we just know each other and i rang them up they were quite surprised and said would you put this out they said yeah of course we will they didn't think i was going to ever do anything and it was handwritten and i put it out there at that beatles conference and jeffrey giuliano was there and he just he was there because he published the beatles a celebration and he pestered me to death. If you're listening, Jeffrey, you pestered me to death. <laughs> but he had a point. He said, look, nobody's going to see it. It's going to be here and that's it. And eventually I said, all right, let's make it bigger. So it's um, enlarged. It's the same story as I wrote, much shorter. I wrote a much shorter version, far more clipped. But it's put into a different genre. It's put so that it's readable. It's commercially readable. But you know what people in this country and, well, all over the world are going to say. They're going to say, hey, these two, these two scathing biographies come out now yeah. uh, that, that say all sorts of nasty things about John Lennon. So here comes his sister. She wants a little piece of the action, too. No, look, if I wanted a piece of the action, I could have had a great chunk of the action any time I wanted it. Right. After John died, I was asked, you write the story, name your own price. I said, get out of here. I don't want anything like that. I'm not into anything like that. I have written in defense of my mother. I feel as if I might face her again one day, and I've got to say, look, I did something about it. John's not here to do it anymore. Yeah, that struck me. You know, I, I when I started on page one, I figured now I'm going to read the inside story of what John Lennon as a youth was like. And half the book... It's about your mother, too. Well, it is actually, if you look in the dedication, it is dedicated to right. my mother, mm -hmm. not to John. Mm. Um, if somebody had misrepresented my mother and we were in a, I mean, we are a normal family, but if we'd have been without the superstar, right, then I could go and confront that person, say it was you, and say, hey, look, I don't know why you said this, I don't know who you said it to, but it's wrong, and let me put you right, and what are you maligning my mother for? You never met her. Right. But because John was the public figure that he was, it's public knowledge, and it's misknowledge. So it's, it, it can only be put right in that sort of way. There was a phrase uh, here, and I don't know who wrote the jacket copy, but it says, for over 20 years, John Lennon's family has been inundated, inundated with requests for interviews, which it has rarely granted. I mean, I, I can certainly understand that. That's, yeah. you know, yeah. that you want that. But I'm, I'm curious now, all these interviewers have had these questions saved up for 20 years. I'm wondering if you've had something saved up for 20 years that you've always wanted to say in an interview. Um no. <laughs> Do you mean to you now or <laughs> No. No. I mean, this to me, I'm, a, I'm just sort of getting used to this. I've done it. I really have done it for a special sort of motive. And um, I suppose it's certainly helped me writing it down. There's no doubt about that. It's been double-edged. You know, it's, it, it's made me understand more about my own family when you've got to actually sit and sort it out. I was just going to say, you, you've faced... A lot of tragedy in your family, yes, more so, more so than than many people have. But I've talked to other people who have faced tragedy, and they find almost invariably, or I find, I should say, when mm. I talk to them, that they discovered that in the act of putting it on paper for others to read, that they also put it on paper 
for themselves. A, for themselves, and it was a catharsis that it, they felt so much better. And uh, you're a, exactly a, right because otherwise it's lifted. all in there, all right. swirling and whirling, and you make some order of it when you write it down. And you feel less burdened than you did before. I definitely do. There's no doubt about that at all. No doubt. There's, I, I want to ask you briefly. I don't want to dwell on them because, uh, you know, well, for a variety of reasons. But there is a lot of attention being given now to these other two books that are out right now about yeah. your brother. Which are, which are the two? The Goldman, yeah. Yeah, the, I guess the. I'm, I'm trying to keep them straight in my mind too, as to which is getting. Uh, there was a long piece on uh, entertainment tonight, uh, the other evening about. Uh, um, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember which one it was. Uh, which, whichever is, is says the nastier, of the, whichever is the, is the nastier of the two books. Uh, I don't, well, I don't, that's Goldman, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, he was catching a lot of criticism, which he mm. was trying to deflect by saying, "Well, I've done all this research. I've talked to all these people. This is the true story." Listen, he's talking. If we're talking about Albert Goldman, he's talking. He's written the, and I say in parentheses. The, he's written the definitive biography of a man he never met, um, talking, and he admitted himself, from what I've seen, that he hasn't spoken to anyone that was close to John. Well, the definitive is right out of the window from there on in, isn't it? We hear... And again, forgive me, I, I guess I should, I, I don't have either of those other two books because mm-hmm. they're not doing interviews with lowlifes like me. But, <laughs> so the publishers don't send me the books. One of them alleges that he was bisexual. Yeah. Another one alleges that he was anorexic, mm-hmm. uh, that he was addicted to, you name the drug, they say he was addicted to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any truth to any of those things? I would say, you cannot say none of this is true because that in itself is not true. Um, I think John's John's exploitations with drugs and drink and hitting the odd person are well documented. They're in every newspaper at the time. I'm sure there's people with clippings and cuttings and bits of video, I don't know. John himself has talked about it. They're not a secret. Nothing that he's put in that book is a secret. It's just been blown out of all proportion. Anorexic, I can't believe. John enjoyed his food, he really did. But I certainly think he changed his diet that would have made him lose weight. Many of us 40-year-old people do, don't we? You know, <laughs> you suddenly find that somebody raucous in the 20s, sort of stuffing themselves with food and booze and stuff like that. In their 40s, they're suddenly healthier than they've ever been, and they're on rice and beans, and I'm one of them, um, and vegetables and lots of fresh fruit, because you suddenly realize, what are you doing to yourself? And you're going to straighten yourself up. I mean, it's all this fitness and jogging, and it's all part of it, isn't it? You wake up some morning looking like me. <laughs> <laughs> you say, what happened? Then you go microbiotic. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, he was part of a trend in that, of the age group. There's a lot of them doing it. Paul now doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, and lives on a very healthy diet. And boy, does he look good. He really looks good. I mean, healthy. You know, he's just got that vigor about him. Anyway. I don't imagine that he hesitated for even a moment when you asked him to write the form. No, not at all. I got a, I wrote to him and I got a reply by return of post. I met him almost right away because I couldn't go down. I had um, school exams. And uh, he plunged right in. He's with me every step of the way, which is great. And I brought him in because he's got street cred. You know, he's got credibility. If I'm writing about my mother, my brother, people are going to say, well, they're going to say on the one hand that Goldman never met anybody, and on the other hand, I'm totally introverted about it, and it's um, nepotism. 
gone wild. Well, of course it is. <laughs> but <laughs> um, bringing Paul in, Paul knew my mother well. Of course he knew John as a close friend. And he knew me and my mother and John. And, I th and because of his position, I thought he was the best one to bring in on it. And he didn't hesitate to come in on it because he does remember these things. About the homosexuality, that's the only thing that I would say in the book would refute. The only people who can talk about John and Brian are John and Brian. It's very easy to discuss the whole, I mean, they'll be married and have children next year, and they're both dead, what can they do about it? Paul said, when I asked him about it, um, first of all, he said, well, why not me? I'm gorgeous, aren't I? Right. <laughs> oh, this is true. <laughs> but what he actually said was, I was holed up in a hotel room with John all over the world for years, touring, locked in. For their own safety, they were locked into those rooms, he said. And there was never, ever the slightest inkling of anything. Now, that's good enough for me. When do you miss John the most? Are there certain times, certain times of the year, certain seasons? Well, of course, you think about him on his birthday and stuff like that. I, mean, I think about my mother still on her birthday. Um, I miss him just not being there for the rest of my life and my children's lives. Because he's a sibling, he should always be there. It's tough to lose a brother or a well, sister, Well, of course it? it is, of course it is. If you've read the um, my foreword, Paul's done his, and if you've read mine, I do zen, because I find it helps in all walks of life. Nothing, and not this in my whole life generally. And I've given a simple zen um, story, if you like, to explain why I've written the book. And uh, it's a very, very rich man, goes on this huge pilgrimage, gets his feet bleeding and everything, all the right things. He's super rich and he wants to know the recipe for a happy life because he realises that money isn't everything. And he goes to this little teacher high in the mountains in a cave and he waits outside for days on end and eventually he gets this little note that says, Grandfather dies, father dies, son dies. And he says, what? This is it? You've brought me across the land for this? I've been travelling for weeks. I don't believe it. I'm a very rich, important man. I've given up my business. I've given up my time. And the teacher comes out to him, calms him down and says, look, if you've got these three generations, if the father dies before the grandfather, you have a lot of unhappiness. If the grandson dies before his father, you have unhappiness, but if the grandson dies before the grandfather, you have total chaos in your family. I would give you this as a recipe for a happy life. And to me, it just summed it up. Wow. I know you must be asked this an awful lot, but do you have a favorite John Lennon song? Yes, and I have to keep saying the same thing. It's Imagine. And uh, it probably is for most people. John himself loved his rock and roll album. He didn't think it was good enough, but it wasn't as good as Elvis, was it? He never, he never quite cracked it. But he loved that album himself. He did it because he wanted to, because he's always wanted to do rock and roll. And I love that because I know that he was so happy doing it. I found that terribly ironic that here your mother encouraged yeah. John to pursue that kind of music when at, a, at exactly the time when the Beatles came to America, my parents and so many others were discouraging yeah. us. I know, I know, I know. And we loved Elvis. From the minute we heard him, I remember my father bringing in the Heartbreaker Tell record and saying to him, is that, is that it? Is that the one you wanted? He's just gone in and bought it. Oh, so it was, I remember it so clearly. Julia Baird is 73 now. She's retired and she still lives in Liverpool. Are you new to Now I've Heard Everything? 
Well, you can find all of our past episodes, seasons one and two, over 200 interviews at all, at our website, heardeverything.com. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the guy who became famous for being the second banana to people more famous than him, my 1998 interview with Ed McMahon. So to me, he said, Ed, I don't know what it is in the world that you do, but whatever it is, you're the best at it in the whole world. <laughs> That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.